You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, Fuck, Mary kill. You know the game, although it's really more of a thought experiment than a game. Or maybe it's more of a personality test than a thought experiment. Anyway, fuck, Mary kill. Someone names three people, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and you have to pick which one you would fuck, which one you would marry, and which one you would kill. Bill, Jeff, Elon. I mean, obviously. Anyway, late one night, I was tweeting in bed on my Helix mattress, which is also good for tweeting, and I tweeted, fuck, Mary kill, but you can only name one person, go. Lots of responses to that tweet, lots of quote tweets. And a little outrage because one or two people named Ivanka Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene. And then a little more outrage as those got retweeted. And yeah, so I decided to delete that tweet before it went viral because I was going to bed and I didn't want to wake up the next morning to discover that I was the main character that day on Twitter. The small amount of outrage my tweet generated before I deleted it and went to sleep, this little outrage nightcap, it seemed weird to me because there are lots of fuck, marry, kill tweets all over Twitter that name three people, and they're not met with any outrage. It's fine with the internet if you want to play fuck, marry, kill and name three people, but if you name just one person, it's quote, creepy, and quote, disturbing, and quote, what the fuck is wrong with you, Dan? Nothing is wrong with me. If anything, my version of fuck, marry, kill is less creepy and less disturbing and less wrong than all those three-person versions that garner no objections. There's just one victim in my version. One person winds up dead. But in all the other versions of fuck, marry, kill out there, one person winds up dead, one person gets fucked by a murderer, and one person winds up married to a murderer. Three victims. How is that not worse? Only one of my followers got the right answer, the answer I was looking for, and that was novelist Ayelet Waldman, who named her husband Michael Chabon as the person she would fuck, marry, and kill. That's what marriage is, folks. You meet someone, you fuck, then you marry them, and then you spend the rest of your life suppressing the urge to kill that person. And the person who fucked you and married you, they want to kill you too. Not all the time, sometimes. Waldman gets it. Others did not. So, yeah. I'm glad I deleted that tweet, even if my chances of becoming the main character on Twitter the next day were small, I didn't want to risk it. Madison Cawthorn, on the other hand, got to be the main character on Twitter twice in the last couple of weeks. He did a podcast where he talked about elderly Republican members of Congress inviting him to coke-fueled orgies. Madison, in a tight black t-shirt showing off his biceps, his baseball hat on backwards in the manly style, he professed to be shocked, shocked by the sexual perversity he'd found when he got to Washington. And just when Madison's orgies were fading from the news, Politico published photos of Madison Cawthorn last Friday, famously Butch Madison, famously Manly Madison, Politico published photos of Madison Cawthorn in lingerie. This was just a few days after the New York Times published a trend piece in their style section about men wearing lingerie. I don't have much to say about this trend, except that if right-wing Republicans in North Carolina are doing it, it's already over. Oh, and the Madison and lingerie story broke the same week Cawthorn tweeted, there's only one God and only two genders. 
There were only two photos of Madison in lingerie as well. And he's clearly at some sort of party. He's surrounded by women who are embracing him and smiling and laughing. These weren't pics he took in private to share on Tinder or Grindr. They weren't sexts. So they don't tell us anything about what Madison is into or who Madison is. They don't complicate our picture of Madison or they don't queer that picture, as the queer theorists might say. Madison Cawthorn is still a straight white Republican asshole who is accused by dozens of women at his college of sexual harassment and assault, and then Republicans elected him to Congress. But I got to say, in one of the photos, Madison's looking into the camera and pretending to touch his right nipple through his black lacy bra, and there is this faraway, dreamy, wistful look in his eyes. Now, usually when you see a photo of Madison Cawthorn looking into a camera, what you see is fear and panic. It's the panic of someone who knows he's lying and knows he's in over his head and who's worried he won't get away with this grift forever. But in that lingerie photo, I don't want to read too much into it. Maybe Madison Cawthorn was just high or drunk. But for once, there's something going on behind those big blue eyes of his that isn't panic or treason or overcompensation. He looks unclenched for a second. He looks unguarded. He looks for once at home in his body. Now, I'm not saying Madison Cawthorn is trans or that Madison Cawthorn's a cross-dresser. I don't think he was getting any specific sort of thrill out of wearing that lingerie. No gender euphoria. I don't think that lacy black bra made his dick hard. No, what I see when I look at that photo is a prisoner gazing wistfully through the bars of his cell. The brand of aggressive, gun-toting, lib-owning, ball-tanning masculinity Madison is usually performing, the show Cawthorn puts on most of the time, or all of the time, out there firing his assault rifle, beating up trees, calling for violence against his political opponents, the baseball hat on backward thing, and his carefully modulated voice, the bro-speak intonations. To keep that shit up, Every day, every waking moment, wherever there's a constituent or a camera around, and cameras are everywhere these days, that shit is exhausting. That kind of amped up performative masculinity, it's a nightmare for everybody, but it is a prison for guys like Madison Cawthorn. And you can see it in his eyes, that little glimpse he gets of freedom, freed, if only for a moment, from the man he's doomed to pretend he is. All right, quickly circling back to the marrying theme before we start the show. Sometimes I get wedding questions. I don't mind them. Always happy to give wedding advice to people who are about to marry. Anyway, a little advice on what not to do at your wedding. First, don't kill the person you just married. Please don't actually fuck, marry, and kill anyone. Fuck and marry, yes, kill, no. And please don't do what Danya Glennie did at her wedding in Florida. Shortly after being served meatballs, Caesar salad, and bread with olive oil, guests at Danya's wedding started feeling dizzy. Some started throwing up. One had a psychotic episode and wound up in medical restraints in a hospital. Because Danya and her caterer, Jocelyn Bryant, unbeknownst to the groom, it seems, laced the food that was served at the reception with pot. Lots and lots of pot. To add insult to injury, the cater waiters knew they were warned, but the guests didn't know and weren't warned. It was actually one of the waiters who tipped off a guest who then tipped off the cops. The guest started to feel strange, said something to the waiter, and the waiter said, well, there's cannabis in the food. 
Truly a wedding to remember. Not that anyone who was there can remember it. Along with her caterer, Danya's been charged with food tampering and a drug offense. So it turns out Danya was playing her own game. Fuck, marry, dose, and go to jail. Okay, coming up on the micro and magnum versions of the Savage Lovecast this week, I chatted with Christine Emba, author of Rethinking Sex, A Provocation, and it was indeed provocative. We had an interesting, complicated conversation about her critique of sex positivity and consent culture. The first part of our conversation is on the micro free version of the show, and the entire conversation can be heard on the magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. Twice as long, more questions, no ads, which you can subscribe to at savage.love. Also, a quick programming note before we begin. We talked recently on a couple of episodes about unsolicited dick pics. It occurred to me that I should invite listeners who've sent unsolicited dick pics to call in and tell us why you do it or did it. I'd like to think that listeners of my show don't send unsolicited dick pics anymore. Still, we never hear from the guys who engage in this behavior. We know you're out there. If you're brave enough, take a couple of minutes to explain yourself, why you did it and why you stopped or why you're doing it and haven't stopped yet. Just use the voice memo app on your phone and send it to us via voicemail at savagelovecast.com or you can call 206-302-2064 and leave us a message. We will play the most interesting calls from the most interesting unsolicited dick pic senders on an upcoming show. All right, let's get to it. Hi, Dan. This is a 25-year-old from Los Angeles. I am calling um, because I've been casually dating for a while and I met someone I kind of really liked. And after a little bit of talking, we met up once and, you know, we both talked about possibly meeting again. And he, he told me after a few days of talking pretty consistently that he wants to explore something with somebody. I didn't know if it was still open or what his deal was and he told me he would be open to talking but um meeting up will be a while which is so okay but i've been going out with many people and i just can't get him out of my head i mean honestly i've just been trying to go and move on from it but i find myself when i'm like (laughs) with somebody and like talking with them and out on a date with somebody my mind just is kind of like thinking about him and I just don't know what to do. I even tried to ask him a little bit about traveling and he was so nice and everything and was very much like, okay, well, if things change, I'll let you know. But I'm not waiting around from him. I'm not doing anything like that. I just don't know how to get him off my mind because this person isn't available. He even um, deleted the app we met on and is obviously not initiating conversations for obvious reasons. I don't know how to go and get this off my mind and I'm I'm definitely not going to reach out again. I don't know. I just can't stop thinking about him. You're pining for the one who got away because also you're pining for the one who rejected you, who had a choice between you and some other person and chose to pursue things with that other person and you're pining for him Because in your imagination, the relationship you could have had with him if he had chosen you, which he did not, and I think you need to concentrate on that a little bit, is perfect compared to the imperfect guys who are sitting across from you at dinner. This guy met up with you once. You were into him. You liked him. You had a good rapport when you were texting with him and swapping messages with him. 
And so you began to, some part of your brain began to fantasize about a future with this guy that was cut short, that fantasy version of the relationship you could have had with him, as opposed to in reality, the imperfect, messy, human, fucked up relationship you would have had with him if he'd been open to dating you, which he was not. Yeah, that is what you're thinking about. You're really not thinking about him. You're contrasting an idea, a fantasy of perfection with the you know, other guys that you're hanging out with, other guys that you're dating, other guys that you're meeting up with. What do you do about that? You know this is not a healthy trap you're in. You know that you need to stop thinking about this guy. Well, when we tell ourselves stop thinking about X, it's very hard to think about X. There's that old joke, don't think of an elephant. And of course, now you can think of nothing else but elephants. I would encourage you not to torture yourself like that. Don't yell at yourself to stop thinking about him. Just tell yourself what it is that you're actually thinking about, which is not him, but the possibility that he represented possibility of a good lasting solid relationship with a guy that you were into who was smart and funny and willing and able to engage. And you don't know, you can't know the reasons why he chose someone else for all, you know, he's already married to that someone else, you know, actually very little about him. And you are filling in the rest of the story with the fantasy version of him and the relationship you could have with him. So just keep telling yourself, it's not him. It's this fantasy and keep dating other guys. And a guy is going to come along, keep seeing other guys. A guy is going to come along who does the same thing for you that he did. You're going to meet a guy that you really like, that you have a good rapport with. And that as you're sitting there on the first or second date, you can imagine something good happening here, that there may be, you know, a a real possibility with this guy for something lasting and loving and committed for what you want out of a relationship. And then that guy is going to supplant this guy in your imagination. And who knows, that guy may choose you. You may choose him. That guy may want to pursue things with you and you may wind up in a relationship, not a fantasy relationship, not anything perfect. There is nothing perfect, but in a real relationship with someone that you can have a real complicated, interesting, fucked up, loving, sometimes hating bond with, and you will forget about Mr. Possibility, Mr. Perfect Fantasy. Hi, Dan. This is a cis 30-year-old straight female. I'm calling because um, I have a question about talking about sex when you're an assault survivor. I was assaulted by my boyfriend in high school when I was 16, and I've done a lot of work on myself in, in therapy over the years, and feel like I've really moved past it. I live in New York when I first was dating. I was kind of sleeping with random guys and it was a lot easier to kind of experiment and ask for what I want because these were just like random guys and I didn't care what they thought. But I'm in a relationship now with an amazing guy. We've been together for almost a year. I can talk to him about anything. I feel totally comfortable around him. But for some reason, I feel a lot of guilt and shame around asking him to 
spice things up a little bit um, because I still sort of have some of that trauma and some of those fears and I'm not really sure what to ask for. Just having trouble kind of getting the words out and feeling, you know, not embarrassed about it. And I just kind of want some kind of way to ask him without asking him, if you know what I mean. But I know that's not possible. Anyways, any kind of advice you have or you know of about how to deal with that guilt and shame and how to not let it affect my sex life would be great. First, I'm really sorry that you were sexually assaulted. And second, I'm glad that you sought help, got a therapist, worked through this. I don't think the issue here, though, with your current boyfriend is one about guilt or shame around your desires. It's a fear of being judged by your boyfriend. You say that when you first started seeking out sexual partners again, you sought out randos. You had casual sex with guys that you weren't necessarily planning to see again. And so it didn't matter to you what they thought. If they judged you because you wanted X, Y, or Z, sexual things, sexual activity, sexually from them, if they thought that was gross or terrible, well, then you could just pick up your phone, pick up your pants and leave. And it wouldn't matter. With a romantic partner, with someone that you've made an investment in, you know, an investment of time, an investment of emotional and romantic energy, it matters if he thinks less of you. It matters if he is grossed out, if, if he rejects you. That's why it's so scary for people often to be exactly who they are sexually with a romantic partner. You know, we wait to show our true selves or our true desires to someone that we're dating. And by the time we, you know, are frustrated enough with, you know, what we're doing, which may be some of what we want, but not enough or all of what we want, by the time we're ready to disclose, the stakes are so high because if this person that you've been dating for a month, two months, three months, a year, in some cases, years, in some instances, I've heard from people who'd already married and had kids and were 10, 15 years into a relationship with someone and they were still nervous that this person might stumble over their internet browser history and realize that they were into all these other things or all these additional things and judge them or leave them. All right. This is what you have to work on. I don't think it's guilt or shame about, you know, your history of sexual trauma. I think it's just fear of, of how high the stakes are now with your boyfriend. But what you have to ask yourself, the pivot that you have to make is, what happens if you keep kicking this can down the road? What happens if you wait any longer to ask for what you want, to learn how to communicate with him sexually about your actual sexual interests, which you don't list? I don't know what they are. The stakes just get higher and higher and higher, and it becomes even harder to have these conversations. All right, so you say you have trouble getting the words out. Sometimes when we have trouble getting the words out, it's a good idea to get the words down instead work on an email, work on a letter, because then you can just vomit up the words onto the page and then revise them, read them and revise them and rethink them and perfect them. And you can present that to your romantic partner. And this is, 
you know, it's a scary thing to do because what if he curls up his nose and, and leaves? But it also might be, uh, you know, a moment where he can then open up to you about his non-normative, not all column A, some column B, some column C, sexual interests or desires of his own. It's a laying your cards down on the table moment. And it is high stakes. But the longer you wait, the higher the stakes are going to get. And it's important when you have this conversation with your partner not to go into it with, you know, in the posture that you're revealing something terrible about yourself or something tragic. You're not going to him and saying, oh, my God, I have leukemia. You're going to him and saying, I trust you enough to open up to you more about who I really am sexually. And I don't want to just be in a position where these are things that I could tell to someone I didn't care about. I want to be able to tell these things and share these things with someone I do care about. So that's why I'm sharing them with you. That's why I'm telling you. But this can be a positive. You know, you're scared right now to tell them these things because you're worried about a negative outcome. Give a little bit of thought to the potential positive outcome here. That your boyfriend, that he may share some of these interests of yours. That these things that you are disclosing to him may also be things that turn him on. So, yeah. Don't wait any longer to have this conversation or don't wait any longer to write this email, write this note and share it with your boyfriend. And fingers crossed, I hope it goes well. Hey Dan, 30 year old gay guy in the big West Coast city here. I have this friend, he's 40. We've hooked up in the past, but it's just platonic now. Although I know he still wants to have sex. I'm just not interested in him like that. And my point is just that our relationship has been sexual in the past. So last night, we're at the bar with some friends, and they're talking about guys they've hooked up with and showing each other pictures from their grinder chats, etc. And he starts telling me about this guy he hooked up with, and he opens the media folder of their chat in WhatsApp, and I see a picture of me at the nude beach from last year. In the picture, I'm looking down at my phone, and it's my entire body, including my face, although I am wearing sunglasses. So I'm like, what the fuck? And he says that this guy he's chatting with saw me in one of his Instagram stories, said I was cute, asked who I was, and somehow that leads to him sending a naked picture of me that I didn't even know he has. So... Last summer when that picture was taken, I asked him to take a picture of me using my phone so I could send it to a guy I was interested in. And the picture I ended up sending had a banana emoji over my dick. So I've never sent that picture unedited to anyone. I've never sent a fully nude picture of myself, including my face, to anyone ever. And so I asked him, I was like, why do you have a naked picture of me? And first he tries to say, I asked him to take the picture. And it's like, well, yes, but with my phone, I gave you my phone to take the picture. And so then he says, well, you sent it to me. No, I never would send that to you. And then he says, well, it's not a big deal because you send naked pictures on Grindr all the time. And it's like, well, yeah, but not of my entire body, including my face. So I tell him to delete the picture. He deletes it from the media folder in their chat, but supposedly can't find the original on his phone. Plus, it's still in the chat, so he can just download it from there. It's super awkward leaving the bar that night, 
because I walk home with a mutual friend and he's literally holding on my arm saying, you know, please forgive me. I'm so sorry. Please don't tell her. Um, he texts me a bunch afterwards saying, please don't tell her. I'm sorry. Um, but he seems more concerned with me telling her because then she's going to tell everyone and everyone's going to know about this and it makes him look bad. So Dan, I don't know how to proceed. I don't know how many guys he's sent this picture to that he's had for a year now. There's no way for me to make sure he deletes every copy. I'm not concerned about professional consequences or anything because I know there's a million naked pictures out there, but it just feels really gross knowing that he's been holding onto this picture that I didn't know he took and sending it to random people. So Dan, is it even possible to be friends with someone after something like this happens? What would he need to do to make the situation right? What would you do? What would I do? I would do what you did. I would tell my friend that I was angry and I would make him delete the photographs in front of me all the while knowing that the photo still exists in chat and it might be lurking somewhere else on his phone. And when you delete a picture, it doesn't automatically delete it. Sometimes goes into deleted photos file where it can be recovered. Of course it can be deleted from deleted photos and then it's gone forever, but then you have to hover over someone to make sure that they do that. Yeah. There's not much that you can do here except not hang out with this guy anymore. Certainly not go to nude beaches with this guy anymore. He was engaged in a particularly shitty, pernicious kind of sex clout chasing where he was sending around nude photos of you and probably nude photos of other guys that he slept with to randos on grinder to say, Hey, look at the hot ass I can get, look at the big dicks I can pull. And yeah, that's just a, a, a shitty thing to do. And you shouldn't be sending out or forwarding nude photos of people that you've slept with or photos of that people have shared with you without the consent of the person in that photo. And there are some people, some guys, a lot of gay guys, they don't care who sees their dick uh, attached, you know, attached to their face, not their dick's attached face. You know what I mean? A pic with a face and a dick in it. Some guys don't care. Some guys want their nude pics spread far and wide. You aren't one of those guys. And he shouldn't, no one should just assume someone would be okay with something like this. The fact that he didn't ask whether you would be okay with this is an indication that he knew that you likely wouldn't be okay with it. <sighs> yeah. I don't know how a friendship survives, you know, a, a neurotic friendship. You're not interested in him anymore. Sexually. You've hooked up a few times. He's still interested in you sexually and is bragging about you sexually about having, been with you, showing you off to other guys that he's interested in sexually. I don't know how a friendship survives that kind of use, misuse, that kind of uh, abuse of your trust. Yeah. When you're laying with somebody at a nude beach these days in the days of cell phones and ubiquitous cameras, <laughs> Uh, and photos are being taken, there's a degree of trust implicit in that moment that he's not going to snap a photo on his own phone, that he's not going to forward the photo he took on your phone to himself before he hands your phone back to you. And then if he's in possession of those photos, cause you guys were flirting on grinder, wherever you met the first time, he's not going to save archive and then attempt to leverage your nudes in an effort to get into some other dude's 
pants. Yeah, I don't think you should be friends. I don't think you're going to be able to be friends with this guy going forward. I don't think this is something that you can bury. There's not much more that you can do about it, which is going to make any interaction you have with him feel frustrating that you're going to be with him. You're going to try to, you know, stuff it down the memory hole, but it's going to be present that you're just not safe with him. Not that you're going to be hauling your dick out at brunch or something and he'll get to get another picture of it, but that you just know that he sees you not as a person whose feelings he has to take into consideration, not as a friend, but as an object, as a nude pick that he can use, that he can toss around on the internet, send to other guys on Grindr for clout and to puff himself up in their eyes. Yeah. Friendship over. Hi, Dan. I've been recently kind of at a loss to how to navigate a situation where I have a friend I really care about. She kind of was going through hard times recently, which turned into like she needed a car. She wanted to move out of her parents' house. And the way that she ended up giving a solution to herself to do that was to like reconnect with her ex. And I started with like, oh, I'm just going to be friends with him. And this was particularly like an ex that I wasn't fond of. I think she deserves better. I think it was quite toxic, um, manipulative, all the things I do not wish, you know, in people for my friends to date. So she reconnected with him, was like, I'm just going to be friends with him. <laughs> uh, and then ended up borrowing his car. And then within weeks, they ended up moving in together as friends in separate rooms. And she's like always working on himself and really proving himself to me. So we are talking about dating. I guess my question is like, how can I continue to just love and support her and be there for her as a friend while feeling deeply uncomfortable with the choices she's making and being involved with an ex that I wish she wasn't involved with? Maybe he's changed. Seems unlikely. Sometimes people do. Maybe he's been doing the work. Maybe he's changed. You can hang out with him a little bit. You can take a look. You can see how they interact now and make your own judgment about that. Likelier that your friend faced with two bad choices, living at home with her parents and she wanted out of her parents' house or moving back in with her shitty toxic ex who was willing to give her a room and a car yeah, that she's making the rationalization that allows her to feel good, at least temporarily, about choosing to be with him again, to get out of the other situation that she was in living with her parents. What can you do as a friend? Well, if you don't have a car and a room to offer her, if you can't be option three, you can just be there for her. You can and should, as a friend, tell her what you really think, that you think this is not a good idea. You can remind her having witnessed how this relationship went last time and knowing who he is and likely still is that this makes you uncomfortable and that you're worried for her. And then you need to say to her, but I don't want you to worry that if this comes to shit, if this, well, if I'm right and you're wrong and this was not the choice you should have made, I don't want you to worry that if you come to me and ask for help, I'm going to say, I told you so I will not say I told you so. I will be there for you. I will help you. I have concerns about what you're doing, about what you're getting back into. I was there for you when this was a shit show last time. I'll be there for you if it's a shit show 
again. I don't want what you want to say to her. What you don't want her to do is to hesitate to leave him for fear of losing face with you and others of her friends who may be telling her the same thing that you need to tell her and should tell her right now. You want to be the person she turns to right away if and when, and maybe it'll be soon that she realizes that she made a bad choice here, a bad decision when she begins to see if it is indeed a rationalization that she's made when she begins to see through it too. You want her to get out sooner rather than later, which means you want her not to hesitate to reach out to you. So that promise in advance, I'll be there, I'll help, and no, I told you so's, that's really important. That's what a friend needs to tell a friend when that friend of ours is getting back into a shitty relationship that they may need to get rescued from again in the future. Hi, Dan. I'm a 32-year-old cis girl living in the Northeast. I'm literally driving back home right now from a second date with this girl. We get along really well. We click. We vibe. Like, I don't know. She's really cool. She's like this incredible artist, which is just so attractive to me. And we have so much in common. The only issue that I'm having right now, and I just need some perspective because I don't really know. I don't know if this is something that's common or not, but... I saw, like, from a deep internet dive that she is trans, which I'm totally fine with. I don't care one way or the other if she's cis or trans or whatever. I think she's super cool. She's really cute. I really like her. But I am concerned because she actually told me flat out tonight on our date that she is not transgender, which is not something that I asked. It was a piece of information that... She sort of offered up in the context of our conversation. She definitely is trans. So I'm just not really sure. Like, is this a red flag that she's telling me lies? Like she's being dishonest? Or is this just something that is common in uh, the trans experience? I should specify that she kind of went into a little more detail. Like she's mentioned having period cramps when she was younger. Um, She's talked about, you know, just her experience as like being a woman growing up, which, you know, she, she is a woman. She has been a woman her whole life. I totally understand that and appreciate it. Honesty is something that I really, really value in myself and in the people I'm around. But then again, I don't know if this is a, something that is really making her feel insecure. I don't want to look down on her for that. I'm sure there are going to be people out there listening who have a problem or take issue with the fact that you did this deep internet dive on this woman that you've been on a couple of dates with. Uh, I'm not sure how I feel about that either, but it is a thing that people do. Sometimes people do it for their own protection. They want to know that the person that they've been on one or two dates with is the person that they claim to be. And so, yeah, with so many of us now having lived so much of our lives or all of our lives Online and having left a footprint, Googling someone is a thing people do, and maybe it's something we shouldn't do unless we have concerns or a worry that we're being played. But easy for people to condemn, but it is a thing that, yeah, almost all people do. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that would include some of the people who would condemn it or want to judge you for what you did. All right. 
it's understandable why some trans people wait before they disclose. You've only been on two dates with this woman. It's understandable that, you know, not all trans people feel safe being out as trans. And it can be particularly touchy with, you know, someone that you're dating. This wasn't a hookup. I think it's in the best interest of trans people to disclose that they're trans to a casual hookup to protect themselves from winding up alone in a room with someone who is may, particularly if it's a cis man, have a violent reaction to having been with or, you know, getting with, hooking up with someone who's trans. But when it comes to dating, sometimes trans people really don't want to come out as trans until they know that they can trust you or that you're just someone that they can trust uh, and that they want to disclose to. They want to confide that in you. But that's different. Holding it back, waiting to come out as trans until you've been on six or seven dates or you've hung out some more, vibed some more. That's different than actively lying. I don't know why this woman that you're, you've been on a couple of dates with went to such lengths to actively lie to you about being cis when they're not. I have this weird double bank shot reverse flip uh, idea that maybe the trans thing was a lie. Maybe when she was younger, she claimed to be trans when she wasn't for some sort of clout in the communities that she, you know, in the you know circles that she moved through as an adolescent. You say this was a really deep dive. How many years ago was this? How old was she when she was out as trans? You know, some people are going to go, why would anyone claim to be trans when they're not and invite that kind of judgment and shame and, and you know, stigma onto themselves. But in some circles, there is a certain cultural cachet and clout. Clout's the word of the day. I don't know why I keep using the word clout today. To not being cishet or not being cis, you know, lesbian or gay in this instance. So it's within the realm of possibility that she's telling you the truth right now and whatever she was saying on whatever listserv you dug her up on from 10, 15 years ago, that that was the lie. But there's only one person who knows the truth here and it's her. You're either going to have to ask her straight up, tell her what you found, tell her you did what so many people do. You did a deep dive on the internet. You looked into her because you liked her and you're curious about her and you wanted to know her better. And also, as you know, a woman out there dating in the world, you wanted to do your screw diligence and protect yourself. And you found this and you want to know why she felt she had to lie to you about this thing that she did not have to lie to you if indeed it was a lie. And yeah, all signs point toward likely a lie with the very slim possibility that cis is the truth and trans here is the lie. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with Christine Emba. She's a columnist for the Washington Post and author of the new book, Rethinking Sex. Hey, Christine, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I got to say, I loved your book. I hated your book, which I think was the goal. The subtitle is... uh, Rethinking Sex, a provocation. And I was provoked. And at times I felt implicated, maybe in a lot of bad sex. Let's start with consent. You write a lot about consent. You write, consent does not make sex physically, emotionally, or psychologically safe. And an attitude of uncritical sex positivity neglects this fact. 
you've been identified as one of the writers, which in an emerging, what they're calling sex negativity movement. Can you talk about that? Let's talk about consent, but let's talk about whether you're comfortable with that moniker, the sex negative writer. (laughs) Yeah, that's a very good question. And thanks for bringing that up. I do not identify as a sex negative writer. Um, I am very in favor of sex and good sex specifically. I think what I am though is a critic of uncritical sex positivity of the idea that being sex positive means that you shouldn't ask any questions about whether some acts are better than others, whether some ways of treating people are better than others, whether we need a higher standard, say, than just the bare minimum of consent. I'm worried sometimes that, you know, in our push to say that we're sex positive, that we're, you know, not judgmental, that we're allowing everybody to do their thing, that we neglect to address situations in which people are really harmed, uh, in which limits could actually be helpful, in which maybe consent is given, but something very wrong is still happening. Let's talk about where I felt implicated. You know, I have for years, uh, you know, advocated for consent. I've been writing about sex for so long that I was there for no means no, and then there for yes means yes. And then therefore, yes, meaning yes isn't enough. You need enthusiastic consent and enthusiastic and then ongoing consent. You argue in the book that our conversation about consent, the way we've centered consent, it isn't protecting everyone or enough people from winding up in situations having sex that they may have consented to but feel bad about afterwards. How do we prevent that, people feeling bad about sex they consented to afterwards by having a new conversation about consent? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, first of all, I think we have to admit, right, that people will get hurt when they're in romantic relationships, when they're having sexual encounters. That's kind of the nature of the human experience. You can't avoid being hurt. That said, I do think that we you know, have to talk more about how consent is a floor for sexual encounters. It's not a ceiling. When we talk about consent, even sort of the the myriad different definitions, ever-evolving definitions of consent that you describe, you know, no means no, yes means yes, affirmative, enthusiastic, we're still often framing the question as an almost a goalpost, right? Like, did I get the right kind of consent so that I can have the sex that I want to have without it being actively criminal? Mm Mm-hmm. That's a really low bar. <laughs> I'm suggesting that we should want more from our sexual relationships than than not being actively an assault. And so I think that consent, just focusing on consent, doesn't ask people to consider the bigger questions of sort of morals and ethics. Is the sex that I'm having actually good for my partner? Am I actually thinking about them? Um, am I, you know, creating something good that we can both, you know, look back on and maybe regret, maybe not feel the best about, but at least feel like we were being cared for in that encounter? One of the things that comes up in the book a lot is, I don't want to describe it as transactional, but like the relationships between men and women and what men want out of sex and what women want out of sex. And I have to, you know, I'm a gay man. I give a lot of sex advice to straight people, straight men, straight women. I have to be conscious at all times of that fact. And I wasn't 30 years ago as conscious of the differentials in power and expectations as I think I am now. And, you know, one of the things that I'm really conscious of that I'm always talking to straight guys about is that you may not think you're being scary, but a woman brings to being alone in a room with a man 
millennia of sexual violence that's directed at women, a kind of sexual terrorism. And she may be afraid of you, whether you intend her to be or not. And you have to make an extra effort to make sure that that woman isn't giving you a yes, isn't consenting under duress. You may not be consciously aware of or be able to perceive because of your being a male, right? Even if a guy does that though, like the standard, the, the, you know, I read, I read your book and like, so you talk to so many people who feel bad after the fact about the sex that they had. And it just feels like under that standard, none of us should have sex ever because the chance that someone might feel bad about the sex they had with us, even if it was consensual or seemingly enthusiastic consent at the time that someone could feel bad about it later just feels like a bar. You know, you talk about the consent bar being too low if it's just consent. That seems like a bar that's almost impossibly high. How do you control for no one ever feeling bad about the choices that they made to be with you sexually? Yeah, that's it's a really complicated question, but I think there are two parts to it. First, I guess another critique of consent is that, you know, when you say that you have to get consent and that's kind of the only thing you need to think about, it doesn't ask people to think about these power dynamics. Um, it doesn't make interrogating those part of the conversation. And so in the book, I quote this story from the anthropologist David Graeber, and he talks about how in a high school classroom, guys and girls were asked to write sort of a story about what a day would look like from the viewpoint of the opposite sex. And so female students were able to write these really long, detailed essays about what a day might look like through the eyes of their male colleagues, like a male student. Mm-hmm. And then boys just couldn't come up with anything at all, <laughs> or sometimes even just refuse the assignment. They were so unused to thinking of the world through female eyes. Um, and that's like in high school, you know, that's really young kids and mm-hmm. that sort of differential and how, how much understanding we have about how the other sex thinks it's really visible when it comes to sex. So that's one thing. And I think that's a problem of education and empathy. But then the other question you ask, you know, is trying to prevent our partners from regretting the sex they have with us too high a bar? Well, not when you put it that way. (laughs) Certainly, you know, we should all make an effort uh, at all times to, you know, do everything we can to make sure that people we're having sex with want to have sex with us and aren't going to come to regret it. It's just how do you control for that if after the fact someone who consented and at the time consented enthusiastically and then later on, Mm -hmm. you know, I I guess this is like me tiptoeing up to shitty old arguments about like regret and, you know, isn't an indictment of the person that you had sex with. If you come to regret what you wanted to do or what you agreed to do, it just feels like Mm -hmm. that is – that makes rapists of us all in the end and not just men. Yeah. So I think that you, I mean, you can't control another person's feelings. You can't ensure that they'll feel good about any encounter that you've had with them. But I think that having a higher standard than just consent could help us on the way there. So in the book, I advocate for a higher standard that I define as willing the good of the other, which is, you know, based on, Aristotle by way of Thomas Aquinas. And the idea is that in a sexual encounter, we're doing more than consent. You should be actively sort of empathizing with the other person, actively trying to make their encounter as good as you would want your own. 
And if you don't feel like you're able to do that, whether your emotional state, you don't know enough about your partner, you don't really have an understanding of what the good is in some way, then restraint is probably the better option. I read this thing in your book, Can We Not Love Each Other for a Single Day? And yeah. I loved that. I love that way of putting it. I've always said, you know, my campsite rule, try to leave people in better shape than you found them. And also I'm always hammering away at this concept of like a successful short-term relationship. We talk all the time about Mm -hmm. successful LTRs, but most of our relationships are going to be short-term and we want those to be successes too. And if people limp away from an evening or a weekend or a month or a year with you feeling diminished and, you know, filled with regret, if they can't remember anything about the encounter, that is a positive for them going forward. You haven't left them in better shape than you found them. I would love if everyone approached every interaction, even if it was just even an anonymous hookup with that idea of, can we not love each other for a single day? Because we can. Right. It's actually not that hard. It does implicate us though. And, you know, some responsibility for the other person, like it becomes our job to be empathetic and think of the other. And it means decentering our own desires as the most important thing. It means, you know, thinking of the other person as important too. And to be clear, like this, you know, this won't solve every problem. Obviously, there will still be areas where there are mistakes where people have regrets. But as so many women and men told me in interviews, you know, what I want from an encounter is just like empathy, care, like actually being listened to. Mm-hmm. And even if we're just trying to do that and probably failing because we aren't perfect, but even trying to do that is a step a, a step far further from where a lot of relationships are now. Sometimes I have conversations like this and I part of there's a little voice in the back of my head going, the people who need to hear this aren't listening. Right? Mm. People who would read your book, people who would listen to the conversation you and I are having right now and really take it in are probably already thoughtful, considerate people who are trying. You know, maybe there's some, you know, people who are new to sex, new to relationships, who are hearing these things for the first time and are going to hopefully internalize them. But the kind of shitty people moving through the world, taking advantage, (laughs) not giving a crap, whether they leave someone in worse shape than they found them, just using people, they aren't going to read your book or listen to my podcast and go, oh, yeah, I should knock that shit off. So we're always going to be moving through a world, each of us as individuals, where there are shitty people out there that we have to dodge. And any conversation about, you know, a better thought than just like consent being, you know, enough or the magic ingredient, as I called it once upon a time, isn't going to reach mm-hmm. the shitty people. Yeah, that. <laughs> I mean, you're totally right. There are just shitty people out there who don't care. And in some ways, this book, right, it was the people who pick up a book that's called Rethinking Sex, a provocation, I mean, are are trying to think about sex and hopefully think about sex in a useful and helpful way. That's true. But one of the things that I think is that I'm hoping for with this book and in starting this conversation, you know, it is supposed to be a provocation. It's supposed to bring these questions kind of into the public sphere, into public conversation. And if I think enough people are thinking about how to have better sex and also sort of instituting these social norms Mm -hmm. about what sex should look like, then it becomes a little bit easier to kind of sideline those shitty people. If we, if the majority of people have a higher understanding of how we treat other people, what a good sexual encounter looks like, ideally then 
you know, we'll start to not have sex <laughs> with those people who we know don't get it. Exactly. I think that I think you hit it right on the head. Like if even if we don't reach the shitty people, you know, you may wind up in a room or on a dating app chatting with a shitty person. And if you won't put up with that, you're not going to be victimized by that shitty person. If you go in to any, you know, sexual encounter dating situation relationship, you know, having expectations, making demands, not allowing yourself to be used, which is not to put it on people who were used that it's your fault for allowing it. But part of this conversation is helping the decent people and thoughtful people learn how to spot and avoid the shitty people. Yes, exactly. I mean, so in the book, I talked to so many women and men too, in fact, who would tell me these stories where, you know, I talked about one girl who asked me, she tells me about a guy she's dating. She's like, I really like him, but he chokes me like without warning. me. I don't love that. Yeah. And she didn't, he had a way to complain because there was like no norm. And this is sort of what I was talking about with un- an uncritical sex positivity. There was like no outside standard she could appeal to, to be like, no, this is actually not okay. And so part of this book also is trying to get, allow people to feel like they're not alone for not liking the shitty sexual culture that they're part of and that it's okay to be like this is this sucks this is unacceptable i'm not kink shaming if i say to someone don't choke me and that wasn't all right you just hauling off and choking me because you saw it in porn but that said and i agree with that uh debbie herbanic is a sex researcher of indiana university who's done a lot of research into this choking epidemic i've had her on my show like i believe that pushing back against that isn't kink shaming that said you know reading the chapter some desires are worse than others mm-hmm. i want to push back uh, against some of your arguments i'm going to read um a, a paragraph from it when it comes to sex Some things are worse than others, or at least should not be mainstreamed, and we should be able to say so. It should not be so hard to express our own discomfort and discuss the broader implications of various preferences and practices, whether it's the long-term impacts of sex work, the psychological underpinnings of BDSM, or the downsides of casual sex. But in a world of uncritical sex positivity, our ability to critique is limited. And you also write in that chapter a craving to dominate is generally less healthy than a desire to express affection. And I was reading that thinking you talked to so many people, you interviewed so many people about their experiences. It didn't, that chapter didn't read to me like you'd talk to any kinky people. Yeah. I think that's a really strong critique and that's a chapter that I've gotten a lot of pushback on, probably the most pushback on. And then, you know, first of all, I think I'm also going to remind us that, the book is supposed to be a provocation to further. Yeah, exactly. Not for not a prescription for what people can and can't do. Mm-hmm. I think in that chapter, what I'm what I'm trying to push people to ask about is to critique their desires and where they come from and what they mean. You know, why do we want the things that we want? And what would we want if we had the choice? Mm-hmm. And I think that we have to be able to have these conversations, you know, publicly. That said, I also think that we have to have these conversations in a way that is 
open to the perspectives of, yes, people who are kinky, people who have different desires, people whose desires have been marginalized historically. And we have to be open to, you know, critiquing our own assumptions. Like you telling me that like this chapter, you know, rang off to me as an invitation for me to be like, okay, why did I say that? Where am I coming from? Am I incorrect? Is there something to be revised? And and we're not in disagreement here. Like I, I think people should be thoughtful about what turns them on and really think about why the things that turn them on might turn them on. And I agree with the argument that you make in the book that culture shapes desire. It really does. The problem, though, is a lot of people who say, well, you should be thoughtful about the, you know, the things that turn you on. You should think about these crazy kinks you have and you know what might have prompted them or caused them is having a really deep understanding of where your kinks come from doesn't mm-hmm. eradicate them. It doesn't make right. them go away. It makes you a more thoughtful person, but the shit that turns you on is still the shit that turns you on. And what are you going to do about it? Well, you're, if you suppress it and never act on it in a consensual way with other consenting adults, and that is the argument you make in the book that there are some things, even with other consenting adults on page one thirty eight, there are things that even consenting adults shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. And that seems to me arguing that there are kinks. I mean, I mean certainly there are, you know, kinks, crazy turn-ons that morally cannot be acted on. Um, you know, attraction to children, murder, cannibalism. There are things that morally can't be done. They can be fantasized about. There's vor fetishists who fantasize about being eaten and sometimes enact those fantasies with partners where no one is actually being eaten. And, and, and so, you know, I want people to be thoughtful about these things, but I don't want people to limp through life denying themselves these pleasures if these indeed are their pleasures. Yeah, and I think that's something that I, I want to query too, the idea that all of our pleasures should be acted upon and that, you know, our pleasures are more important than the effect that they might have on other people or on, you know, kind of society at large. And I think in this chapter, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that people should not, you know, act out their kinky desires or that sex that wants to transgress, that's interested in sort of the interactions of, you know, dominance and power play should be totally out of the norm. Mm -hmm. Of course not you know, unique individuals. And we do have things that please us that we, you know, can't change. But I do wonder sometimes in our public conversation, you mentioned cannibalism and the sort of extreme example that I use is the army hammer cannibalism case. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I thought was just really weird about that conversation, you know, when we had these text messages and these reports from his ex-girlfriends who were like, his desire was to cause me pain and to hurt me. And it was you know, terrible for me. The only thing that, you know, the media sort of said about this was, well, Arnie Hammer should have gotten consent for branding his ex-girlfriend. And, you know, I wonder whether we should question that a little bit more strongly. Was the problem that this wasn't consented to or the fact that wanting to physically hurt someone is the only thing that gets this guy off? I think that we you know, be able to ask questions. Army Hammer didn't exactly get a free pass. He's never going to work again. Yes, and I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. But I guess, yeah, what I'm saying here is not necessarily, and I don't want to prescribe which desires are bad and which are acceptable. 
But again, just that we should be able to ask ourselves sharply and strongly in public, what can we do as a society to institute norms that will make kind of the median person at least feel safe Mm -hmm. having sex? Um, And what we do, you know, in relationships where there has been trust established, where both people or multiple people know what they're getting into in the encounter, where this has been really discussed and resolved, that might be different. But, you know, for the person who goes into an encounter and is like surprised choked or is like surprised by, you know, this desire to cause pain from their partner and that's unexpected and, and terrifying to them, maybe we should ask. Well, and, and but what are we asking for then? What What's missing, you know, if you're surprising somebody with pain or choking, what's missing is a conversation and obtaining consent, enthusiastic consent. You know, you say, I don't want to live in a world where everybody gets to do whatever they want to whoever they want, whenever they want. I don't want to live on a planet with 7 billion Caligulas, myself either. It's wow. just people have dark transgressions. Like you establish norms and you were such perverse beings that instantly there's something interesting about transgressing against those norms. And what I want to live in is a world where we understand that some people have dark desires, you know, interesting fucked up things that turn them on for reasons that aren't a choice. Nobody chooses their kinks, right? Nobody chooses to be vanilla. So being vanilla isn't an achievement any more than being straight is an achievement compared to being gay. But we need to live in a world where people have the self-understanding about how to channel that. Like, what do you do with that? So you're turned on by, I don't want to use the cannibalism example again. And you know, you, you write a craving to dominate is generally less healthy than desire to express affection. There's also, you know, most people who are dominating someone are dominating someone at their, at the person who, that they're dominating's request, that there are these desires, not just to be the victimizer, but to be the victim. And this theater for two, which is, I think what BDSM is, it's cops and robbers for grownups with your pants off. Right. <laughs> and, and that Perfect. can be wonderful so long as you're not forcing someone to play cops and robbers with you. But the same standard applies to vanilla sex. If you're forcing someone to have vanilla sex with you, that's sexual assault or that's rape. Same goes for choking or branding or cannibalism, bondage, S&M whatever else. And it seems like we could have one standard for those things, recognizing that, you know, if you're doing crazy kinky sex, the potential for someone to walk away from that feeling bad is probably the likelihood is higher. So you're going to have to be more conscientious, more thoughtful, engage in more conversation, but you're still going to want to, and then we got to live in a world where you can. Yes. So first of all, I just have, I, the image of cops and robbers with your pants off is just such a perfect way of putting that. I loved it. But I mean, I have to say, you know, the point of this provocation is simply to make us pause and ask questions rather than just unquestioningly assuming that consent makes something not just okay, but, you know, actually good. Mm -hmm. You know, some desires may well be okay in the context of a certain relationship or understanding, but, you know, we have to acknowledge that consent, again, is a floor, not a ceiling, and to ask whether it's enough. And then also, I think, we have to ask questions on a macro level. So not just about two individuals who are, you know, performing whatever kink that they want to, choking or something else. But also I think it's worth asking questions about what it says about our society for, you know, more sexual preferences 
even if they're very authentic, even if they are the things that bring us pleasure, to be violent, to implicate and sort of replay and, you know, deepen these relationships of oppression or these dynamics of racism or sexism, et cetera. Right, right. Yeah, I think that that's such an interesting place. It's an interesting thing to think about because so many people's sexual desires are shaped by shitty cultural forces like racism, sexism, violence, and we eroticize our fears, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of what turns us on is the stuff that scares the shit out of us. And I think that what's going on there is this desire to like minimize and control it. Like, you know, there's a reason why so many women, when you are they're interviewed about their sexual fantasies and the researchers pour over the data, so many women are turned on by we don't want to call them rape fantasies anymore. We call them ravishment because you're being taken by someone you want to be taken by, which is different than being mm-hmm. taken by someone you right. don't want to be taken by. But they didn't ask. They just like were overwhelmed with desire for you and took you, right? And that's, you know, women live every day with the fear of sexual violence. And that is a fear that is eroticized for many women. And you is acting on those desires, reinforcing those cultural you know, that that's what you argue in the book that like race play or gendered eroticized gendered violence reinforce, you know, it, it would have a spillover effect. It wouldn't just be those two people in that room that they would carry that out of the room and help to perpetuate those systems of oppression by allowing themselves to enjoy what their erotic imagination already did, which was making into a turn on for them. Right. I mean, eroticization, as we kind of know, is one of the best ways to teach things um, because the erotic really, you know, lives in our brain. And like, you know, we go over these pathways over and over again. Yeah, I think that it is worth wondering whether what we're eroticizing eventually has outflows, not just for the two consenting individuals in one sexual encounter, but outside of ourselves. You know, we know that you know, young men who watch violent porn tend to, over time, become less sympathetic to rape victims when asked mm-hmm. uh, and more accepting of sexual violence. And that's something that we've eroticized. And we can say, you know, well, we're just watching this or we're enacting it right. because it causes pleasure. But what does that mean in a larger sense? What does that do to us further on? And I think we have to be for those questions. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I worry those questions are essentially, they can be boiled or, or seen from a kinky person's perspective as that thing that you feel bad about, you should feel bad about that thing that you already feel bad <laughs> about, right? Because a lot of people struggle with their desires that are non-normative, with their paraphilias, with their kinks, with any sort of, you know, power is a taboo on the left, any sort of like sexual desire that eroticizes a power imbalance. They feel bad about it already. And yeah, I don't know that shame is a a force for good in people's sex lives. I do think saying to people, okay, you've got this kink. Here are the like social forces that probably shaped it. Overcompensate. Like if you're going to enjoy that sexually, you need to outside the bedroom overcompensate for that. And that's been, you know, to leave gender aside for a second, it's been my experience of like the handful of guys I know who, who were like sadists, that they were the nicest, kindest people outside of that, I think in a way, because they felt bad about being sadists and they wanted to like prove to themselves they were still good people. Hmm. And that's, I would rather have sadists in the world become those guys that I've known than Jeffrey Dahmer's 
right. or John Wayne Gacy's. And so for me, it comes back to that like idea of channeling. We've been talking for such a long time. I could talk to you all day. Like, like you said, it's all about <laughs> thinking this through questions uh, and being provoked. And you did successfully provoke me, especially with lines like the best sexual world is perhaps a less free one. And um, the chapter, our sex lives are not private as a gay man. I read something like that and I get very nervous because it was not too long ago that my sex life was illegal. And, you know, I was of course. 21 years old in London, you know, a few decades ago. And my boyfriend was 20 and the age of consent there for gay sex was 21. For straight sex, it was 16. For lesbian sex, it was 18. But for gay men, it was 21. And we were breaking the law and our roommates knew about it and were uncomfortable. Well, I had a roommate talk to me like I, I, when he found out my boyfriend was 20, I don't want you doing this in the apartment. So it's in my living memory that like my sex life wasn't private and it was regulated and not free. And it makes me, you know, I was provoked. It made me nervous to read that chapter. Yeah, no. And I think that's really fair. I mean, I think also reading that chapter with sort of the different definitions of privacy and how it's talked about can be helpful because in that chapter specifically, I was, I think I was trying to talk about how having all of our, you know, especially when we have for many young and straight people, but also gay people, our sexual encounters mediated like through dating apps where ostensibly nobody knows who you are, what you're doing and thus feel people feel like they don't have to be as responsible for you in some way because you know who are you going to tell you don't know their friends you don't know their family and so people get up to all sorts of things that they might not if their sex lives were more corrigible or more embedded in a community but but that's often not about the acts that's that like lack of accountability because there isn't a social network that somebody is embedded in where you're dating somebody you know from work or dating a friend of a friend or someone you met at a friend's house or a party where if you treat that person badly, that's going to get back to all your mutual friends and it could have social consequences for you. That usually doesn't constrain, you know, someone's sexual interests or behavior if it's consensual. That usually constrains like whether someone treats somebody respectfully or with contempt or uses them in a way that leaves them feeling terrible, which isn't about acts. It's For me that, you know, because I did agree, you know, I read the, the title of that chapter and I was like, oh boy, here we go. But then I agreed with a lot of what you said about the problem with apps and the way you wind up dating people that you have no other connection with. And that lack of social accountability can leave you vulnerable to mistreatment because somebody isn't factoring into how they interact with you. That possible social consequence of, you know, being an asshole that it might bring. Right. And when I talk, when I spoke of sort of a lack of freedom and kind of a lack of privacy, what I was referring to was that lack of accountability. I mean, when you are accountable to other people, you act in some ways less freely because, you know, other people um, will be watching and have opinions. And, you know, I was suggesting that in some cases it is, in fact, better to be constrained by expectations of people who expect you to be a good and decent person as opposed to being totally free to be the worst person your heart demands. But, you know, when it comes to questions of freedom and privacy, I totally understand how these conversations, especially at first blush, can be really alarming. I mean, the sexual revolution happened for a reason. The feminist movement happened for a reason. And, you know, I'm not trying to go backward at Mm -hmm. all. 
what I'm saying, though, you know, is that we ultimately need standards of care that are higher that would help everyone. And I think that we have to question our desires for total atomization and selfishness and note that they don't necessarily lead to happiness. We've made a lot of progress. And I think that has been great, especially for the groups that you mentioned. But some areas just haven't seen so much change. And also new problems have arisen. And we have to talk about those, too. Christine Emba, author of the new book, Rethinking Sex, A Provocation. I was certainly provoked. It was a wonderful and bracing read. Uh, And thank you so much for writing and thank you for coming on the show and talking about it. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed talking to you, too. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy Youth. 40-year-old cis bisexual male here in the Pacific Northwest, and I have a question about polyamory and kids. My assigned female at birth wife and I are in a polyamorous relationship, a triad, with another uh, bisexual male. Um, we're really happy, and it's it's been going on about six months now, and I've listened to the, the podcast enough to know that when you oftentimes advise people uh, in new relationships to wait to introduce their partner to their children because of the, the risk of, of attachment and, and losing that partner if, if, they, if they leave the child's life could be traumatic, and I'm a strong proponent of that. Um, however, in our current situation, I'm concerned that our daughter, who is nine years old, will either see or hear something or has already seen or heard something, you know, such as cuddling or conversations about our situation and that she would not understand uh, what she is seeing, perhaps think that mommy or daddy is, is cheating or that something is going on that she needs to keep a secret or feel shame about. So my wife and I are currently considering discussing with her um, our situation so that we could get out in front of the message and explain that it's, you know, a loving situation between adults and there's nothing to be ashamed of and nothing that she needs to be afraid of and that everyone is is aware of what's going on and approving. But I, I didn't know because it's, it's only been six months and I know it seems like normally you would say that this is, is too early and I, and, I, and I get that. But I wanted your advice because I haven't heard this question really taken from a polyamorous perspective where the additional partner isn't really an attachment figure in the child's life and where there could be confusion around the situation and things that the child sees or hears. I'd look forward to hearing what you or your listeners think. You say that you have concerns that your daughter might see or hear something such as cuddling or conversations about the situation you're in. And then you also say that your other partner, the other bi-male in your lives, isn't really an attachment figure in your child's life. So my question to you would be, what's the cuddling situation? Are you cuddling with your wife alone and discussing the other partner? Or is your other partner a part of that cuddle puddle? Is he there in your house where your daughter is? and a part of these conversations. And if he is in your house and a part of these conversations or a part of these cuddle puddles, how have you introduced him already to your daughter? Who does she understand him to be? And how has he managed over the last six months to avoid becoming a sort of attachment figure in your daughter's life or potentially that, you know, the potential that your daughter has already become attached to him. If he's someone that you see outside the house, if he's not someone who spends the night, if he's not someone whose presence is any different in your house in the presence of other 
friends who may drop by and hang out with mom and dad while your daughter's around. And I assume at nine years old and you and your wife still being together and co-parenting that your daughter is always around. You may not need to do any explaining, but if there is intimacy, if after your daughter goes to bed, the three of you are hanging out, you're having conversations about your polyamorous relationship. If you're cuddling on the sofa, all three of you together, or if you're having sex and if he's sometimes over and having sex when you're alone in the house with your daughter or your wife's alone in the house with the daughter and he's there and they have sex. Yeah. I don't think nine years old, I'm sure I'd get banned in Florida for saying this. I don't think nine years old is too soon to have a conversation with your daughter about what's actually going on an age appropriate conversation with your daughter about what's going on because you don't want to burden her. You know, if she's overheard something, if she's walked into a room and seen something and turn around and walk back out of that room without any of the three of you realizing that she came into the room, I'm talking about sex, talking about the three of you on the couch, obviously being very intimate, cuddling, watching television. And she walks in behind the couch, sees this cuddle puddle and turns around and walks out. You don't want her to start to feel insecure or to start to feel like your relationship, yours and her mother's relationship is a lie or is in some sort of peril, particularly if she's witnessed or overheard intimacy, which could include sex when it's just you and he in the house or just him and your wife in the house. You know, the, the risk here is always, you know, I always want to balance my basically not quite ironclad. There are a lot of exceptions to this law, but running friends and family, but particularly close members of your family on a need to know basis. Does your daughter need to know this? Well, she wouldn't need to know it if this was something that only went on outside of the house and this was something that you and your wife made an effort to only discuss with each other in explicit terms when you're out on a date night together, when your daughter's having a sleepover. But if he's being folded into your household in some way, if he's present in the house, if there's intimacy, yeah, you might want to get out in front of that, talk to your daughter, explain to her that mom and dad are good, mom and dad are solid, and this is a special person in our lives. And that sometimes married people date or fall in love with other people and still stay together. That might be important for your daughter to hear, even at, or especially at, nine years old. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Love to nap a bunch tweets. Hey, Savage Lovecast and Dan, did you mean bonding, not bound, when you mentioned other bonded shows on Netflix? Bound is that fabulous lesbian slash mob movie by the Wachowskis. Yes, that's a very good catch. Loves to nap a bunch. Indeed, I meant bonding, the two-season Netflix show about a professional dominatrix in New York City who ropes her gay best friend into being her dungeon assistant. It was not good. Like, it was Fifty Shades of Grey bad. At least Fifty Shades of Grey, though, wasn't pretending to be an informed but humorous look at BDSM subcultures. Lark Star tweets, at school, I'm studying to become a teacher. We're discussing if teens should be taught about kink too. Is there a Savage Lovecast episode on this subject? There isn't, but there's going to be a moral panic about teens being taught about kink in school if you make the mistake of posting something about what you're doing right now or thinking about doing right now to TikTok. Of course, kink should be covered in a comprehensive sex education curriculum. Of course, it won't be. It never will be, not in the United States, 
which doesn't mean kids won't learn about kink or kinky kids won't find their way to kink. They just won't learn about it in sex set. They'll learn about it from porn, which is not ideal. Damn it, Ali tweets, taking a web seminar for my new job and they keep talking about PIV, personal identity verification. But after years of listening to the Savage Lovecast, my brain hears something very different. I feel you, damn it, Ali. Every time I hear a therapist recommend CBT to someone, my balls ache a little. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And thank you to everyone who posted to social media about the show last week. We really appreciate it. All right, on to something else we really appreciate, listener response calls. Hi, this is a comment for the guy in episode 808 whose partner doesn't really care about his orgasm. My partner, all of a sudden, like a year into our relationship, was kind of doing the same thing. After having so much great sex, it was like really shocking. And one time after sex where he came and I didn't, I just kind of snapped. And I was like, you know, I'm really sick of asking for my orgasm. And it really seemed to click with him. Like once I said something and said that asking for my orgasm was a problem, he seemed to understand. So I hope that helps, but it kind of sounds like this guy has some selfish stuff going on. Dan might be right. You might need to dump that motherfucker already. Can we all just get over being afraid of herpes already? Like, God, Dan, the number of times you've had to answer this question. Most everybody has herpes. If someone discloses it to you, that means that they are far more responsible and you are going to be safer with them than you will be with the randos who don't know and expose you or do know and willfully don't tell you. Don't discourage people from being honest. This is for the caller who can't find a guy that likes using her vibrator to get her off because, girl, you were looking at this problem all wrong. So my girlfriend is the same way. 99% of the time, the only way that she comes is with a toy. And laying there next to her and vibing her clit for a couple of minutes is, you know, fine. But tying her up, pulling that thing out, and telling her to be a good girl and not move is awesome. So... Instead of waiting for the sorting hat to spit out that one magical guy for you, just make it a game. Have him use it on you while you're bent over the kitchen sink. Or tie him to the bed and slap one of those suction cup dildos on his forehead. Just find a way to make it naughty and fun. And I guarantee you, you will have plenty of guys begging to come over and use that vibrator on you. All right, one last thing before we leave it. At a cafe on Mootstraße in Berlin last week, I got up to leave and left my backpack sitting under a table right on the sidewalk. The person who'd been sitting next to me noticed and flagged me down, so I didn't wind up losing my computer that day. I, of course, thanked Juan in Berlin at that cafe on Mootstrasse as it happened, when it happened, when he saved me. And it turns out he's a listener and a fan, so I wanted to thank him again on the show, this show, that I would not have been able to record if it wasn't for him. Juan, thank you again. Thank you so, so much. All right, like my backpack on Mootstraße, we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's Lovecast or something to say about something I said on this week's Lovecast? Use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. Bellingham, Washington and Bend, Oregon, hump is sliding into your DMs this weekend and onto your screens. 
Then Hump is off to Denver, Philly, and eight other cities throughout May. Go to humpfilmfest.com for tickets to a screening in a theater near you. Also, you can find streaming links at humpfilmfest.com. And Sack Lunch, my monthly Zoom hangout exclusively for Magnum subscribers to the Savage Lovecast, is next Thursday, May 5th, 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. Mark your calendars now. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Christine Emba on Twitter at Christine Emba. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian. And me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy will all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.